need to, you guys can talk a few more minutes, you know, or if you didn't get to somebody, I'm just kind of rearranging some of this, you know, so getting some things together here, so would have done this earlier, but we had some other things going on, so we needed to take care of that, so, but I want to say I'm glad you're here today, uh, glad you got up today, how many, uh, how many of you forgot the whole clock situation, anybody, yeah, some of you? Some of you might here got here a little early. Some of you got here a little late. But uh, we're just glad that you are here. And uh, remember when you leave here today, don't run out real quickly. Take a few moments to just say hi to the kids, the youth, the young people who participated in this service today and just encourage them. Uh, I thought they did a great job. So, you know. <laughs> I want to kind of open up a little differently today, and uh, I want to share this. I want to welcome you all, and Ben has already done the, the welcome, Pastor Ben, but I want to welcome you all here. Some of you probably believers all your life. Some of you maybe not so much so. Uh, some of you maybe still have doubts. Mm, some of you maybe had parents or grandparents that attended church all their life, and uh, you kind of drifted away and didn't attend. Or maybe you were a part of the drug generation, you were drugged to church, you know, and <laughs> by your parents and didn't really want to go. But I want you to know, here you don't have to pretend or fake it, okay? There's no one perfect here. We all have our faults and flaws, all have our bad hair days. Look at the guy next to you, you know? And uh, we all struggle at times to button that top button on our pants, you know? So, I mean, jumping into them, so we're all like that. But I want to share this also uh, in the time I've shared with you. Uh, we've talked to, we talk out of the word and we talk some stories, but I want you to know that I hope you never make any apology for the word of God or for the Bible and what it has to say because its relevancy extends to every age, whether you're 120 or whether you're just a youngster. The relevancy of the Bible and, uh, and Christ uh, he's just the same throughout the ages. And what he has to say to us and what he said to his disciples is still relevant. The Bible shows real people in real situations of their life. It shows the best and the worst of all humanity. We see its heroes, but we see their warts and all and their triumphs and tragic failures also. Uh, there's nobody perfect in that Bible except when it talks about Jesus. And I want you to know it's not fake news, okay? It's not fake news, but in fact, the Bible says it's the good news about a God who, in spite of everything we've done, all that we are, he still loves us and still desires to be in close relationship with us. He has an unrelenting love for you and I that reaches out to us in in the deepest of our needs and at the height of our victories, he wants to be a part of our lives, always and forever. So don't ever, ever forget that. So, so thanks for coming this morning. And, and uh, if you're an aspiring preacher, or if you're an inspiring preacher, or if you just thought, maybe I would like to teach or, you know, a class, or you do teach a class, I want to tell you this. This is not how I recommend you begin. Okay, preaching or teaching, okay? But I want to share with you this. 
1973, he was married. By 1976, he was divorced. Not because he was unfaithful, but because he was neglectful. In fact, they had gone to college, he and his wife, and uh, she had worked for the school, but he was quite involved with college life because he was going to get his degree and go on and do something with his life. He played on the baseball team. He helped with the soccer team doing video. He played tennis. He was voted in by the student body of the college as the vice president of the student body. So he was a very busy person. So busy, in fact, that his marriage took second place. She was working, but he was involved and engaged in all of the activities of the college and doing all kinds of good things quite successfully and enjoying the college life, come home late at night sometimes, but just didn't have time. And he had been warned before he'd gotten married that perhaps he wasn't quite ready for that type of commitment yet in his life at 22. But he said, no, he assured the pastor he was. But throughout this couple of years, he wasn't, he found out. And his relationship with his wife grew distant. And in fact, they were living in the same house, like you know some people do, but they were hardly doing anything together. He was so engaged and fulfilled by the college life, she was working. She complained, talked to him at times, but he said things will get better or it'll be different, but he didn't want to talk and he wanted just to ignore her at that time. Well, he came home one day and he noticed that it appeared that the furniture had been rearranged in the house. But as he looked closer, it hadn't been rearranged at all. There were pieces of furniture that were absolutely missing in the house. He was a little confused. He walked around in the house and he noticed a couple of pieces gone and he walked in and then he saw a note. And the note was laying on the table. And the note said simply something like this. I'm moving on with my life, and I suggest you do the same. Please, don't try to contact me. He was shocked. He was overwhelmed. He didn't know what to think or what even to say. He, he was embarrassed. He was hurt. He was angry. Angry because he knew that in all of the activities that he was involved in, in all the things that he did, that he had probably neglected this very most important relationship in his life. Also angry because he knew now that when he went back out into the public's eye, they were going to hear about this. And he was pretty well respected. He played on the baseball team. He played tennis. He was vice president of the student body. What were people going to think of him now? All of this just ran through his mind. About six months later, his wife gave him divorce papers. There were no children involved. There was not a lot of things involved. And so he refused to sign them at the time. But she had moved on into another relationship. And she just informed him that she was going to be moving, moving out of state, and that he needed to get on with his life too. And he discovered something about a woman that I have found when I've counseled people also. That a woman will put up with just about anything and everything, won't they? Shake your head, yeah. 
They will. They will put up with a, but just about anything and everything to hold their marriage together, whether it's for the kids or whether it's for the sake of the relationship. But there comes a point in their life when they cross a line. And it doesn't matter if you become a saint. It doesn't matter if you walk on water. There's no turning back for them because their heart and their mind is gone and they have moved on. And that's exactly what happened in this situation. Well, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer uh, because these vases become very important. Not these particular vases, but they represent what I call the grace vase. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our lives, Father, to your word today and all that you would have to say. And we ask it simply in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Pastor Ben has talked to uh, you for the last few weeks about baptism. I don't know if you've all been baptized. Uh, I hope that you would be baptized if you're a Christian, that you would do it in pretty much obedience to the word and, and because Jesus himself was baptized. But I want to tell you a story a little bit. By the way, do you know who Meghan Markle is? Some of you know. Do you know she was in the paper or in the news this week? Do you know why she was in the news? She's Prince Harry's fiance. She got baptized uh, into the, uh, what, the England church or whatever over there. But she was baptized, so I thought it was really a kind of appropriate to mention this. There was a young lady in our church, uh, and she wasn't that young. She was in her 40s, and uh, we were having a baptism service, and we do it at a lake. And uh, we were doing it at a lake this day, and uh, she came up to me while we were baptizing other people, and she said, Pastor Jim, I want to be baptized. And I thought, gosh, I've known Kim for 20 years, and she's a beautiful Christian lady, has a beautiful family, beautiful testimony, serves and works in the life of the church, but she said, but I've never been baptized. And I said, well, then yeah, we'll baptize you. And so we have our congregants, or people who come, the candidates to be baptized, uh, we have them share if they'd like for just a moment, you know, about their life or something that they want to say briefly. And she got in the water, and I said, Kim, is there anything you'd like to say before we baptize you? And she said, raising her hands, I am a sinner, and I'm simply here by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And my heart just thought, oh, Kim was like an angel, and she's saying, I am a sinner. Now, your wives are angels, right? You know, go ahead. You can look at your wife and say, honey, you're an angel too, okay? Yep, they are. Always up in the air harping on something, yes. Uh, so, but anyway, who said that, okay? But she said, I'm a sinner. And I thought, golly, you know, what a powerful testimony. Just And everybody knew her thought, what do you mean you're a sinner? I mean, yeah, I know that we've all sinned, but that was her testimony. And it was pretty powerful just the way it came out that morning. Well, I want to read you something here this morning. It comes out of 1 Timothy. And it's a scripture. And I don't know if I'll have it up there or not today. But uh, it comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And this is what it says. 
This is Paul speaking. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. And you think about Paul's life and everything you know about Paul, and you think, really? You know? We know something about Paul's life. We know what he was all about. And yet he's saying that he's working for God now. Well, he goes on to say this, you know. He says, even though, he says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I, I, Paul says, am the very worst. Well, let me ask you a question. You think God has a sliding scale when it comes to sin? That maybe some sins are greater than another? That maybe pride is worse than just telling a lie? You all know where liars go, don't you? Yeah, that's right. They go to Congress. Yep. So, but I mean, is adultery worse than gossiping? What about greed? What about disobedience? Do you think he has a sliding scale? Well, Paul, I think, believes that because he says, listen, I am the worst of sinners. And we know what Paul's life was like because he says, not only was I a blasphemer, but I persecuted the church. I had people drug out of their homes, separated from their families. I was standing there when Stephen, the first ma martyr of the Christian faith, was stoned. He says, I am the worst of sinners. Or maybe you think, well, you know, but doesn't God love us? I mean, God loves every one of us, the Bible says. There's nothing that can ever separate us, the Bible says, from his love. And so maybe we think that he just looks the other way. And maybe he just kind of overlooks or ignores the sin in our life. Maybe there's not so much a sliding scale because I'm not as bad as the next guy, I don't think. I'm probably, I haven't done some of the things that, you know, a murderer has done a lot more than I have. But maybe he just kind of overlooks some of my stuff in my life. And, uh, well, if you think that, here's your homework assignment. Oh, golly. You know, I got homework? Yes, you've got homework today. Because I'm not going to share all that the Bible talks about regarding this. But go to Genesis chapter 3 and read about Adam and Eve. And see if God has a sliding scale. And see if he just ignores or overlooks our sin. Go to John chapter 8, where the woman was drugged before Jesus, who was caught in the very act of adultery, he says, and he bends down and writes in the sand, and then he looks at those who drug her out there, and he says, okay, now, guys, you who are without sin, who have never sinned, you don't have any sin in your life, you go ahead, you start the stoning. And, of course, they all drop their rocks and walk away. But at the same time, what does Jesus say to the woman? Well, do you mean he just overlooked it? The law called for her to be stoned. He says no. He talks to the woman. He does not condemn her, but he tells her this. Now go and don't sin any longer. Jesus doesn't overlook it. He doesn't ignore it. He knows what it does to people's lives. This is how sin is described in the Bible. 
Sin is described, and these are just some of the words, it's described as a heavy burden, a defiling, a filth, a darkness, a scarlet stain. It's described as deceitful, evil, bad, missing the mark, a debt, a rebellion, an enslaving. God knows how hard, how difficult, and how demeaning sin is in our life. But we look at our world today, and we pretty much excuse a lot of things in our life. We don't call it murder. We just call it a woman's choice, don't we? We don't, you know, I mean, there are so many things in our life today that we no longer condemn or think are wrong or that bad, and we excuse it, whether it's in our government, whether it's from our leaders, or whether it's in our churches. We just sweep things under the rug, and yet if you read throughout the Bible, God doesn't do that at all. He doesn't ignore it. He knows it can be devastating, not only to individuals, but to whole churches at times, and he says, you've got to deal with this. Now, he doesn't condemn, he doesn't judge, but he knows that if that sin separates you from him and he desires that relationship with you, that you need to do something about it. Well, Romans 6.23, a passage most of you all know, says the wages or the penalty of our sin is death. The prophet Isaiah wrote that Israel's sin had actually separated them from God and his blessing. It's pretty heavy stuff, especially when we read in the Bible that all, all, not just some, not just my neighbors, not just those people I read about in the paper who have their pictures in the news every night that are bad people or evil or have done some bad things. He says, no, all have sinned. Every one of us, he says, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But let's read the rest of the story. Because Romans 3 also tells us something else. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely, however, by the grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Oh, wait a minute. What's that I hear? All have sinned but are justified freely by God's grace. I don't know about you, but for the last 41 years of my life, I've been trying to live simply in God's grace. And God's grace is abundant and free, and it's forgiving, and it will transform and change your life like nothing else could ever do. Listen to Romans 8. I'm going to read this one to you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And it goes on to say, for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did... He took care of it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. You see, God says, I'm going to do something about this sin. I'm going to offer you a chance at the gift of life and freedom. But it's going to cost something, and it's going to cost me my son. And you're going to hear a song at the end here about Jesus paid it all, all to him and my own. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washes it white as snow. That's what our God does in our life. That's how much our God loves us. Not because we love God, the Bible says, but because 
he loved us. Paul says, God called me into his service, not because I was perfect, not because I'd never done anything wrong. He said it was simply by the grace of God. He says, I was the worst of sinners that you can imagine. Somebody you would have never, as church people, wanted to hang around with. I persecuted the church. I didn't like you guys. I thought you were wrong. And so I tried to have you wiped out off the face of the earth until Jesus Christ in his grace found me. And that's what Paul says. It's simply by the grace of God. And you read in that same passage of Scripture, and we never need to forget this, it says that Jesus Christ came into this world for what reason? To save sinners. That's what it says. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't care if it's a little white lie. I don't care if it's a matter of adultery. I don't care if it's a matter of pornography. I don't care if it's a matter of murder. I don't care if it's a matter of greed or lust or gossip or whatever you might find in people's lives. Neglect, pride, arrogance, whatever it might be. God says all of us in his eyes have failed to hit the mark and are in need of God's grace. That's why he was sent into the world. We just came through Christmas. The good news of the gospel is a Savior has been born who will save his people from their sins. We're all sinners, but we've all been saved if we know Jesus Christ and been given the opportunity to live in his grace, the grace base. I've got three bases up here this morning, and... Uh, from a distance, they all look pretty good. They all look pretty good. But I want you to know something about this one. It, it wobbles. It's not steady, just like some of us in our lives. Sometimes there's an imperfection. And whoever made this vase uh, for, gosh, it was on sale for $14.99. But uh, whoever made that vase, there's a little bit of an imperfection, and it wobbles. This is my favorite vase. This comes from our house. And uh, it was it's just a little vase, but it's one of my favorite vases. I just like it. Put a little flower in it, holds water and stuff. But one day I chipped it. And you can't tell that from a distance. You can't see that. But right along the edge, there's a chip here and a chip here and a chip there. But you know what? It's still useful. It still serves its purpose. Unless you look closely, you can't see that. Now, this one's a little more difficult to see because it has all kinds of things going on. And this was given to me by somebody else. But if you look, right on the back, there's a big crack right here on the back of this face. Now, again, you can't see it from there. And sometimes that's how we live our lives, too. We don't want people to see us close up, do we? They see us close up, they get to see some things in our life that maybe aren't so pretty. Uh, they'll see a little chip in the exterior. Maybe they'll see uh, that we wobble a little bit at times, or maybe they'll see a, there's a crack in our veneer. 
after that time, and this is this story of my personal life, after, the, after that time, in 1976, uh, when my marriage faltered and failed, and there was nothing there to repair it, um, I was not unfaithful. Uh, she proved to be unfaithful, but, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, I was neglectful. I was arrogant. I was proud. And I recognized that uh, she had become very lonely. Uh, the distance between us was so large that it couldn't be put back together again. And uh, she found somebody else that listened to her, that filled that space of her loneliness in her life, that was there for her, to listen to her, to care for her, that really almost like worshipped her. And moved out of state, far away, and that was the end of the story. It really was the end of the story. That year, after that year, my, my life just was kind of a snowball of wreckage, it seemed. And uh, I had some good friends in my life, but I didn't want to be around them because I was so embarrassed of what had happened to me in my life. But there was an art professor. I don't know if you've ever heard this name. He's, his name was Dick Harsh. He was a really unique guy. Dick was just, he and his wife, Polly Pauletta, we called him. And uh, he parted his hair down the middle. He had black wavy hair, these little horn-rimmed glasses. He was real artsy and real unique. And uh, when he taught in class, if he wanted to get your attention, how do we get the attention of our kids? We yell at them, don't we? John, stop it and get over here. I was talking to you. When Dick wanted to get our attention in class, in our class, he would lower his voice to a whisper. John, get the door away. And all of a sudden, he'd like try to look around. And because it got so quiet, we'd start paying attention again and go, what's going on? That's how he got our attention, just doing that. Well, anyway, life kind of spiraled out of control. Had a good friend when uh, my 26th birthday, on my 26th birthday, I uh, said, Jim, you need to get out of your funk. You need to get your life on track. I'm going to help you. I'm going to take you out to eat tonight. We're going to East Lansing, and there's this great bar I know, and that's where we're going. And he was just going to try to get me going again. And this was almost eight, nine months later. So I went with him. It was my birthday. Truthfully, I had hardly, I didn't, I was a college student, but I didn't drink a lot. I didn't even like the taste of it. He took me over there that night, told somebody, bartender, somebody, it's his birthday. They put these two little, two little things, you know, little things, what are they? Why do you know that, okay? <laughs> two little things in front of me, and two, two drank, you know, oh, you know. Then I was sitting at a table, and my good buddy ordered a pitcher. If you guys have been there, I know some of you have. This big old pitcher of beer at the table, and then I forget what we had, some wings or something, and I don't remember a thing after that. I don't remember another thing except going home, them dropping me off, but I do remember this. There's always kind of a phrase, I'm not sure I've got it right, that I'd heard that I came to understand that night. I think it was called, it's either called commode hugging or the porcelain throne hugging. 
Now, some of you, I believe, know that, too. But I am telling you, never in my life have I ever sat before my toilet, held on, and puked all night long like I did that night. That was a true story. The next morning I got up, kind of like this morning, kind of glazed over, and you know that, and I remembered I had a late breakfast appointment with this art professor downtown. We were supposed to eat together, and I thought, oh my gosh, my gosh, you know. Looked at myself in the mirror, looked like death warmed over, and I said, I can't do this. I just can't do this. But I thought, I'm going. It was before cell phones. And I went down there, and I remember just kind of sitting in the corner drinking lots of coffee, and Dick was talking to me about some things, and he was talking about this entrepreneurial project he wanted me to be involved with and some writing and different things, too, and I was just kind of listening to him. But I think he recognized there was something going on in my life. He knew what was going on in my life. He had known the story of my life up until that point, but that morning he knew something else had happened to me, too. So he said, I'll tell you what, why don't you come over this week and we'll have dinner at my place. You come over and Polly will fix this dinner and stuff. I said, okay. So I went over that night. He has this real electric, uh, eclectic type of things all over in his house. And he took me over that night because he knew my story. He knew I was struggling and what I'd gone through. And he took me over and there was a vase that was two, three times bigger than this. I mean, it was huge. It stood about that tall beautiful bouquet of flowers, looked like it come from the Orient or Europe or something else, all these details all over it, and it was just magnificent. It just like, wow, I mean, it's stunning, you know, there. And he said, he said, Jim, I want you to look at it real close. I said, I'm looking at it, you know, it's beautiful. I said, it's just absolutely beautiful. He said, no, I want you to look at it real close. So I got up and looked at it real close, he s and then he took it, and he went like this, and he turned it. He said, you see that? I said, I'm looking. I sa he said, it's cracked. It was broken in transit. He said, we put it back together again. He said, and look, it still holds water, and it still holds these beautiful flowers. And then he looked right into my eyes, and he said, Jim, that's like your life, too. He said, you think you've been spoiled? You think you've been broken? You've been cracked? You've been hurt? He said, but Dick was, Dick was just a, a strong, strong, he and his wife, Christian couple. He said, but Jim, he said, I want to tell you something. The grace of God can put you back together just like we put this vase back together. And he shared a little more with me that day and that night, him and his wife, and they prayed for me. And I went home, and I literally, that night, got down, and I just, I just wept. And I just cried out. I said, Lord, I have made such a mess of my life, such a mess, and I don't know what to do, how to turn it around, or where I'm going. I said, but if you will take my life and somehow put it back together, I said, if you will just do that, I said, I'll live for you, I'll honor you, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And when I got up from that, being down there, it was like I just felt a wash over me. You talk about being baptized and being watered down, it just felt like God's grace, his love, something had come over me. And then I had a couple of good friends, a youth pastor and his wife, 
in the town, and they took me in and took me by their side and encouraged me and helped me along for the next couple of years. And my life literally was never the same again. It was completely, completely changed. You talk about people when they came to know Christ or when he came into their life. I mean, it was, it was just a complete turnaround in my life. And then later on, a couple years down the road, I met my wife, Vicki. And we have had, I want to tell you this, we have had just a wonderful, grace-filled, loving marriage. And we will be married April 10th of this year, 38 years. 38 years. And I get, you know, you've been married, some of you, a lot longer than that. But I want to tell you something. The grace of God will reach you in areas of your life that you could never expect. The Word of God tells us there's nothing, nothing that could ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Not height, nor death, not demon, not this life, not the circumstances, not divorce, not the idiots out there on the road, not your government. You know, there's nothing. God is willing to reach into your life wherever you are and to make a change for the glory of God. Paul said, I am the worst of sinners. Who could be any worse than I, he said, who persecuted the church, who tried to destroy the church, and yet God, by his grace, reached into my life and changed my life forever. And now I'm serving in his kingdom. That's what God does to you. When he changes your life, when he flips it right side up, not upside down, but right side up, he says, you know what? Not only does the grace of God save you, but I have a plan and a purpose now for your life too. And God uses you. And he takes wobbly people. He takes little cracked individuals and those who have bigger cracks in their life sometimes. And he says, you know what? He said, I can still use you. Don't ever think that God won't take your life and use it to his glory if you will just give it to him and let him do it. I'm going to close here in just a moment. We'll have our kids come back up, the praise team. I want to just share this. We're all sinners. We've had some setbacks. We've had faults. We've had cracks. We've messed up in our life. But the God who loves us indeed is relentless in his love. And I guarantee you this. He's not giving up on you. He's not letting you go. He does not excuse or ignore the sin in our life because he knows the terrible consequences of sin and what it creates. But because he loves us, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for your sin and mine. Thus, Justice is served, but mercy, mercy prevails. And our mess becomes a message to the glory of God. Our mess becomes a message to the glory of God. That's what Paul found out in his life. His mess that he had made so much of his life, the worst of sinners, God chose to use him. And think about Paul persecutor, the blasphemer, the one who stood by 
while Christians were drug out of their homes and even killed? Who writes 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest love chapter in the Bible? It's the Apostle Paul, because he knows all about it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not keep a record of wrongs. It goes on. Paul knew all of that personally, and some of you do too. Our mess becomes a message, and grace, grace wins every time.